and greetings from the Global Mercy in Freetown, Sierra Leone, where we are currently serving in the middle of a field service. And it has been so meaningful and impactful to be back specifically here in Sierra Leone, where I have not been since 2011 when I was a student in the Mercy Ships Academy, their school here. And now all these years later, I'm back serving as a crew chaplain, getting to be with the community and support the community that uh, so shaped me and helped form me. So it has been a true privilege to be here. At the same time, there has also been uh, a lot of struggle and sorrow with the fact that we just don't have enough space for everyone. There's a gate here in the port between the, the city and the, and the port and every day countless people come and they wait at the gate and they knock at the gate and they ask for help and they ask if they can come on board and get surgery. And so uh, this is the reality that there are life transforming and changing surgeries happening every day here on the ship and then there are people at the gate who are having to be turned away. And we live in the tension of this, of this joy and sorrow. And I was walking uh, one day down in the hospital on deck three and four is our hospital and wards and written on the floor of the, the deck, it was a section or a paraphrase from a very famous verse, Micah 6, 8. And it says, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And hundreds of our crew and patients walk over these verses every day, literally walking over the, the instruction to walk humbly. And these words got me thinking, how am I acting towards people, towards crew on the ship, towards the Sierra Leonean people I walk by in Freetown when I don't have the answer that they're wanting, when I don't have the answer to a need. Am I putting my head down? Am I distancing myself? Am I choosing not to, to engage because of fear, because of discomfort? And so I wanted to share from this verse today, specifically the greater context of Micah 6, 1, 1 through 8, uh, because this, this chapter has been shaping me as I go about my work here on the ship. Uh, and I know that it has the potential to shape all of us as we focus specifically on mission and what it looks like to live missionally wherever we are and whatever we do. And so before we read the entirety of this of this passage, I think it's helpful to ask who was Micah? Because being a prophet, many of us know him to be a prophet. Oh, Micah is a prophet. But being a prophet, that is perhaps less uh, a less common job title in the circles we run in today. And so I wanted to, to look a little bit more into what kind of work was Micah doing and why? Who was he? Well, like many other Old Testament prophets, Micah spoke out on God's behalf during a very divided time in Israel's history. And after the reign of King Saul and David and Solomon, the united monarchy experienced civil war in the mid-10th century, causing Israel to split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, with its capital of Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital of Jerusalem. And during this period of division, and also into the following periods of destruction and exile and eventual return from exile, this cycle they go through, uh, a span that covered roughly 500 years, a very long time, the prophets, prophets like Micah, spoke to various issues of social injustice and corruption and other evil practices that broke the covenant relationship with God established by God between him and his people. And so 
Micah lived in the small Judean town of Moresheth, which was about 25 miles or so from Jerusalem, and most likely he was prophesying before, during, and after the devastating and violent fall of the northern kingdom uh, into, into the hands of Assyria in 722 BC. And when Assyria crushed the northern kingdom, Judah survived by becoming a vassal state, which meant they had to pay heavy tribute to Assyria, one of the most ruthless and violent and powerful empires that the world has ever seen. And yet, what should have been a fearful and difficult financial time for everyone was actually a prosperous time for the Judean wealthy and elite. And so as the saying goes, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And yet this elite class continued to sacrifice in the temple and outwardly honor their religious system while the very vulnerable people that the law of God sought to protect were abused and oppressed. And it's into this reality that Micah warns the people of Judah. He wants them to know that they are no less guilty than the fallen northern kingdom and that they will be judged in the same way if they don't change their ways. That is to say, if they don't stop oppressing in the vulnerable. And so it's into this situation that Micah writes our passage today, Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I set you before Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage functions like a lawsuit, where God's case is presented not only to the people, but the very mountains and hills who have witnessed all of their wrongdoing form the jury, and they will decide who is right. The scene is essentially set in a law court of cosmic dimensions, where God functions as both a prosecutor and a judge, with Israel as a defendant. And God wants to know how he has burdened the people when he is in fact the reliever of their burdens. And to illustrate this, two stories are highlighted. First, the central and founding story of God delivering them from Egypt and providing Moses the emancipator and Aaron the priest and Miriam the prophetess to lead them. And in light of this foundational story, the second story God references seems quite minor in comparison. In verse 5, God says, My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. 
The Egypt story is familiar, but what is it exactly about this obscure story about Balaam and Beor that they are supposed to remember? We'll have to take a, a brief detour into the book of Numbers, chapters 22 and 24, to find this out. And it was after the death of Miriam and, and Aaron, as Moses and the people are attempting to approach the promised land through the plains of Moab, that Balak, king of Moab, called upon a non-Israelite prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. King Balak had seen the devastation that Israel brought to the neighboring Amorites, and he wanted none of it. Balaam, however, hears from Yahweh that he is not to curse the Israelites. And so despite Balak's urging, Balaam will not curse the people of Israel. He refuses. And after this story and a few more events, the Israelites finally make the journey from Shittim, their last Transjordan campsite in the territory of Moab, to Gilgal, their first campsite within the Promised Land. So in a sense, Shittim to Gilgal serves as shorthand for the miraculous entry of the Israelites into the Promised Land. And so this story serves to reveal God's faithfulness. But in the context of Micah 6, I wonder if there isn't a further reason the specific story was chosen and placed in the center of this passage, which in Hebrew, chiastic poetry, is where the main point or the message is found, in the center, not at the beginning or the end, but in the center. And this is the story we find in the center. And we know that Balaam is clearly revered by King Balak because he hears from the divine and his words, his curses or his blessings are believed to have power. But there's this part where Balaam interacts with his donkey on the way to meet King Balak that I think is the most memorable part about this story. And so in this story, Balaam's donkey sees an angel blocking the path and refuses to keep going. But Balaam doesn't see the angel. His blindness causes him to angrily beat his donkey three times until remarkably the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey asks Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And this question from the mouth of a humble donkey bears similarity to God's question to the people of Judah in our Micah text. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Eventually, Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees the angel and learns that his donkey's reverence for the angel is the only reason he is still alive. And in this interaction, Balaam's true heart is revealed, and we find the same kind of, of darkness that obscured the minds and hearts of the people Micah is speaking to in our passage. Beating an innocent animal is a terrible injustice. But what's more, Balaam felt that he was the one who'd been wronged. He was the one who'd been wronged, who'd been burdened by his donkey, while he was on the way to do God's good work. Perhaps Balaam's physical blindness to the angel's presence parallels his spiritual blindness to his corrupt way of thinking and living. For God, it was not simply a matter of telling Balaam what to say to King Balak so that the Israelites could go on their way. Instead, God took this opportunity to reveal Balaam's heart and offer a transformative experience for this non-Israelite prophet. God is and always has been in the business of transformation. And so one does not encounter God without experiencing this chance to be transformed, to not only see the light as Balaam did for an instant, but also to live into the light, 
to break the cycles of corruption and oppression, cruelty, injustice, and hypocrisy, and reveal God's love and justice and mercy in our actions instead. And this story, as strange as it is, it raises a question for us. Are we beating any donkeys today? I think for most of us, beating a donkey like Balaam or even oppressing the poor like the Judean elite seems extreme. It's not something we would participate in. Of course not. Of course we're not beating any donkeys. And so this passage can leave us shaking our head in disgust at the kind of people who would do such a thing. When I first uh, graduated from university, a few years, a few more years than I would like to admit now, uh, back in 2017, I spent 10 months in Cameroon on a different ship, the Africa Mercy. Now I'm on the Global Mercy, but back then I was serving as a chaplain intern on the Africa Mercy. And I remember uh, whenever I would leave the ship to go ashore, we had to drive through the port uh, of a distance of, of about half a mile or so. But sometimes it would take us over an hour to drive this short distance because then there were these, these huge trucks laden with enormous logs waiting to deliver their cargo to commercial ships. And I witnessed hundreds of these trucks moving thousands upon thousands of these giant logs every single day. And one day, after sitting behind one of these trucks for a good while, I asked my taxi driver how he felt about all these trees leaving his country. And he sighed and he shook his head and explained how not only was Cameroon being deforested, but that the local people didn't benefit from the money earned in this business. Where do all the trees go? I remember asking him and he shrugged, I don't know, China, America, everywhere but here. And I remember voicing my concern for my taxi driver and, and shaking my head with him at the outrageous corruption and the environmental damage that this logging business was causing. The loss of these trees was uprooting ecosystems, leaving endangered animals like chimpanzees homeless. The decreasing natural barrier between humans and chimpanzees and the other animals leaves both humans and animals at risk for diseases that they don't have the antibodies for. And each truckload carried with it the well-being of an entire ecosystem, species and villages. And as I sat there in the car next to my taxi driver, I remember feeling frustrated at them, whoever they were. They were doing this, not me. I wasn't the one cutting down the trees and driving them away. It's ironic that I have never so literally ignored the log in my own eye as I pointed to the wrongdoing of others. It's well known that there is always someone who pays the price for our bargains. And I wonder in what ways so many of our lifestyle purchases fund corrupt and devastating systems like the one I witnessed in Cameroon. I wondered how my purchases and lifestyle could have funded such a thing inadvertently and yet still, still participated in it. In what ways like Balaam or the Judean elites are we blind to the greater reality that is right in front of us, that we might even find ourselves complicit in? Spiritual blindness can leave us in a situation where we believe we are doing the religious thing that pleases God, all the while ignoring the injustice all around us. And Micah alludes to this in verse 6 and 7 of our passage. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
in answer to this question, Micah significantly exaggerates the amount of the typical offering laid out in Leviticus. Instead of one ram, a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil, even a firstborn child. But this excessive giving while ignoring the poor and oppressed isn't what God wants. As I prepared for this sermon, I found myself humming a song by John Mayer called Waiting on the World to Change. And it goes like this. Don't worry, I will not sing it. I am not gifted with the voices of uh, Rachel Morris or Haley Ballast, but I will read you the words. So we keep waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. It's hard to beat the system when you're standing at a distance. So we keep on waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. It's hard to beat the system while you're standing at a distance. Turning away or standing at a distance from the issues of today, from the food and products we consume, from the people and animals who are hurting and vulnerable and in need of help, increases our spiritual blindness. Micah concludes not by calling the people out, but by calling them forward out of this blindness and into new sight, to live into a way of life that narrows and bridges the gap, to bridge the distance between them and the injustice and greed and evil that they have previously turned a blind eye to. And Micah's words that were written so long ago are just as relevant for us today. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Micah ends with three verbal calls to action. Do justice, love kindness, and here the English word kindness doesn't fully capture the Hebrew meaning of chesed. It's more than kindness. It's, it's unconditional loving kindness, mercy, and tenderness all wrapped up together. And finally, walk humbly with your God. Instead of waiting on the world to change, we walk in as change agents. And I love this image of walking because it suggests movement and learning and growing as opposed to standing still or sitting unmoved with what we believe to be right. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. This calls us forward where instead of looking at those logs being trucked away and saying that's too bad as I did, we ask, what are we as the people who walk with God going to do about it? But also, how are we going to treat people and move towards discomfort, discomfort, even when we don't yet have a simple and concrete solution to the struggle, even when we're still trying to figure it out and we don't know what to offer, but we see people in need, we see a community in need, we see animals in need. What are we going to do? What is our posture going to be? Sometimes I wonder if it's possible that our Christian rituals and practices that are good things in themselves meant to shape us and, and orient our hearts towards God, sometimes I wonder if they can inadvertently become the sum total of what we think God wants from us. But Micah reorients our thinking away from what we have to do or give up and instead points us to who we get to be in light of who God is. And our Christian rituals and practice help, help shape who we get to be in light of who God is. And so they're very important, but they're not the sum total of what God is asking from us. And I think that doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God 
could look a lot like leaning into the relevant issues all around us. We can educate ourselves on matters of social injustice instead of disengaging. We can pray the news. We can be intentional about where we shop and what we consume, whether physically or digitally, what policies we advocate for, and what cherished opinions we are willing to lay down for the sake of God's justice and loving kindness. Distance separates and spiritually blinds us to reality. But closeness, leaning in, being with those who suffer and are in need, it opens our eyes and creates relationships that bonds, that motivate, that, that motivate compassionate action and service. And this is who God in Jesus is. The word became flesh and blood and it moved into the neighborhood. I told you at the beginning of uh, this sermon that we have a lot of people who come to the gates uh, who we don't have room for. And when this first was happening, they were being just turned away in, in large groups by the guards. Um, but very quickly, our hospital chaplaincy team, our amazing hospital chaplaincy team realized this. And my mom, who uh, runs the hospital chaplaincy team on board, she decided to send two hospital chaplains to be there with the guards every day, to talk with the people, to hear their stories, to pray for them. And their presence there has transformed the situation because while, no, it doesn't get them the surgery they want, it still serves to bridge the distance, to say, hey, even in this struggle and in this disappointment, we are with you, we see you. We're not gonna, we're not gonna move away from the discomfort. We're gonna honor and respect you as human beings and let you know that your story matters to us and it matters to God, and we are with you in the struggle. And we're gonna give you time, and we hope one day we can give you the surgery, but for now, the answer is no for surgery and yet yes to the fact that God is with you and God loves you and God has not forgotten you. They lean in, those hospital chaplains lean in every day and it's been transforming. Now the guards are beginning to speak differently to the patients because they watch and learn from these hospital chaplains who are from Sierra Leone. All of our hospital chaplains are from the, the country we are serving in so they can speak the local, the local languages and understand the culture of the patients. And so the guards now are learning from them and it's it's changing the environment of all of what's going on at that gate and so I wanted to just close with that story because that is what we as God's image bearers are called to do to do justice love mercy and walk humbly with our God when we have something to give but even when we don't can we lean in can we narrow the gap I know and I'm always inspired by the ways that you at John Knox continue to do that, to narrow the gap, to care about what's going on in your community and in this world. And I'm so thankful to be a part of this church family. And I appreciate your prayers and I'm praying for you all the way here, uh, all the way from here in, in Sierra Leone. May God bless you and keep you. And may he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you as you yourself seeks to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.